the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. On this week's show, I'll be talking about the latest threat to our corporation tax receipts with Arthur Beasley of the Irish Times. In the second half, Mark Paul will explain to me why he's in favour of the government's plans to liberalise our alcohol licensing laws. First, the corporation tax. On Monday, Arthur Beasley reported that a large number of employees of big multinational companies based here are still working from their home countries where they went after the pandemic broke out in early 2020. One reason being cited for this is the high cost of housing in Ireland. But whatever the reasons, there are now real concerns that this could threaten the 15 billion euro plus annual corporation tax revenues that have been generated by those multinational employers. I began by asking Arthur, do we know first of all how many people actually left the state who are working for these big companies actually left the state and returned to their home countries and haven't yet come back? We don't precisely, uh, but it is a live issue. And the number of people who were working remotely from other jurisdictions was large enough at the time during the pandemic for the revenue to essentially grant exceptions to their large employers when it came to corporation tax. So revenue essentially disregarded the fact that they weren't working in the state and for the purposes of calculating corporation tax, they were regarded as working in the state for these Irish domiciled countries. What has happened now is that the pandemic is over, travel restrictions are a thing of the past, but many of the people who have been working remotely from abroad, even though they're being encouraged and told to come back to Ireland to work, many of them are saying, look at uh, the housing crisis is simply too great, there's a lack of housing supply, the cost of housing is too great, and I'm working perfectly fine from my own country of residence. Okay, so they don't want to come back. And just to be clear, are these people paying their income taxes uh, to the Irish revenue or locally in their home countries? Well, that's a very interesting question because these people, the, the perception is that they're paying income tax in these other countries where they're living. Essentially, income tax follows the place of residence. The question now is whether corporation tax should follow the place of residence and to what extent are the activities outside this jurisdiction linked to the profit-making part of the companies and are those companies going to have to start paying corporation tax in these other countries instead of in Ireland. The perception is that because this phenomenon of people working remotely in foreign jurisdictions, because it's going on for so long that many companies have now started to pay social security for those workers in these other countries, the tax authorities in those countries are going to start noticing that this social security is coming in, that this income tax is coming in, and the belief is that that may in turn raise questions around corporation tax, potentially putting pressure on those companies to start paying corporation tax, some of it on their profit in these other countries, instead of paying some of it here. Now, this is a big issue for the government, isn't it? Because corporation tax has been a very meaningful uh, part of our revenues over the past uh, few years. Last year, uh, we brought in a record 15.3 billion euro in corporation tax. And in the first nine months of this year alone, uh, the receipts were 13.8 billion euro. So clearly we're going to exceed last year's figure. And in fact, uh, some estimates that we might actually touch 20 billion uh, this year. So there's a lot of play here. Oh, Karen, I mean, the the figures are really, really extraordinary. Um, The 
surge in corporation tax revenues goes right back to 2015, right? But when you compare the figures that we're kind of that we're seeing now to 2014, which was the last year before the surge, in 2014 we collected 4.6 billion euro in corporation tax. We're now collecting greatly in excess of 10 billion more than those kind of figures that we were seeing in 2014 and before 2015. Now, that's a long time ago. But with with the ever-increasing increase, we have the state which is now very, 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 very dependent on this money coming in. In 2014, corporation tax comprised 11% of state revenues. They now comprise twice that amount, or they did last year, and may well surpass that this year. So in other words, the total corporation tax haul, if you like, into the exchequer comprised 22% of all tax collected by the state. So this is major. It's more than one euro for every five than the the government takes in. Those of us who are old enough, Arthur, will recall that construction had that kind of uh, impact on uh, Irish exchequer revenues uh, pre-2008. And we know how that ended. Uh, a different a different scenario, I know, but uh, nonetheless, this could, be, this could be very serious. And of course, there's a small number of companies that account for about half of that money. Only the 10 largest companies uh, essentially are generating roughly half of our corporation tax. Uh, that's absolutely right. The figures show that the top 10 pairs paid 53% of all corporation tax revenue in 2021. Ten years previously, the top 10 paid in or around one-third of all corporation tax revenue. So even though the amount of money going into the exchequer has really, really, really increased to a huge extent, the, uh, the reliance on a small cohort of very, very large pairs has increased as well. Do you buy this line about the housing crisis being at the crux of this, the reason why people won't come back? Or is it just that people, you know, went went back home two, two and a half years ago uh, and they've decided they're just they're happy where they are and they don't really want to come back to Ireland? Uh, and, but they still want to enjoy the large salaries that obviously they were being paid here. Well, I, I, I am told from well-placed people that uh, this is indeed a live issue. The question is that or the, the, what it turns on is the end of coronavirus restrictions, at which point the revenue commissioners withdrew the exceptional provision that they had uh, in terms of people working outside the jurisdiction. At that point, many of these large employers urged their staff to come back to Ireland. And what happened then was that many of them said, look, at this is working perfectly fine where I am, but I'm also going to be faced with this huge shortage of rental accommodation and a greatly increasing price of rents and an increased price of property. So, I mean, it, it is there, and I think it is a live issue. And as someone said to me, it, it's another good reason for the government to do more to tackle the housing the housing crisis. But if there was an easy answer to the housing crisis, uh, the housing crisis would have been solved long ago. I mean, there's essentially nothing the government can do in the short term, maybe even in the medium to long term, about the housing crisis, is there? Well, all, all we can hope is that they can continue to, that they can increase the number of uh, houses and apartments that are being built. But that's very, very slow. It's very, very slow. Now, there is another threat to our corporation tax revenues, and that's the global environment, which is facing a lot of these big tech companies who are based here and who have thousands of uh, workers here and who root a lot of their profits 
through Ireland. If we take uh, Facebook, for example, one day last week, a share price tanked, or, or its owner rather, Meta, its share price tanked by 25% uh, following the publication of its results, which were which showed that profits were down substantially. We had um, difficult results, shall we say, for Alphabet, the owner of Google, and for Microsoft and for Amazon. Uh, we've Intel flagging that they're going to implement job cuts globally. And Twitter, of course, has just been taken over by Elon Musk, and he's very clear uh, that he wants uh, he wants to reduce the headcount at Twitter, and Twitter has its European headquarters in Ireland. So the uh, the global environment is is very tough as well. And uh, these are big issues. I mean, certainly in, ter- in terms of the major corporation taxpayers, it is uh, it is acknowledged that uh, a large number of these are in the uh, IT sector, information computer technology, and the others then are in manufacturing, that's pharmaceuticals. So if we leave aside pharmaceuticals, what is seen in recent weeks and recent months is that the very large big tech companies, as as stated, Meta, Alphabet, the owner of of Google, Microsoft, Amazon, um, they are facing headwinds after what has been a a, a pretty heady period of uh, very, very fast growth. And the concerns there centre on their increasing costs. They centre on fear of a global recession because of the invasion of Ukraine, of, of, of Ukraine, which in turn is curtailing the advertising spend by the people who advertise on these on these platforms. And you have a, essentially a, a, a stock market which has begun to question whether these companies can continue to grow at the rates at which they have been growing. The problem from the exchequer's perspective is that these this huge increase in corporation tax revenue has been uh, funded by the increasing profits of many of these companies. So the stock market is saying those profits are not going to be sustained. That's why the share prices are going down. And that, in turn, raises questions for the exchequer, it seems to me. Yeah, now, the government did say in, in the budget that they were setting aside some of this increase in corporation tax revenues, not for day-to-day spending, which would be a concern because it would become embedded in our uh, in our expenditure and uh, could be difficult to fund if the tax revenues fall away. But in, instead, they're uh, putting some of it aside for this uh, rainy day fund, which the government don't like to call it a rainy day fund, but that's essentially what it is. Um, and they're also setting aside some money for kind of one-off investments in the economy. Well, I mean, I look at Kieran. I mean, ever since this surge in corporation tax revenue has, has come to pass, going right back seven years to 2015, the the mantra from government has been that it is aware of the sensitivity that these revenues are volatile. They've proved exceptionally volatile on the way up, right? The, the problem is that volatility can work in your favor when when uh, when income is going up, but it can it can damage you when income is going down. There's a recognition that the vulnerability is there, that the sensitivity is there, but at the same time, you could argue that the government is a, has been at risk of becoming addicted to these revenues because they have proved so substantial over quite quite a quite a period of time. But what helps you on the way up? can kill you on the way down if there is a drastic interruption to the level of payments that are going into the exchequer. There's no doubt about that. Figure, I mean, when people talk about rainy day funds, I mean, look, it's very rainy out there today. Uh, the rain is unavoidable. But, I mean, when people are talking about rainy day funds, the, the figures are really quite quite small as compared with these huge volumes of money that have been going into the exchequer in recent times. Yeah, Listeners to this podcast will have heard us talking about this OECD process, which is going on at a global level. And the idea is to try and bring some harmonization 
uh, to uh, corporation tax revenues and to make sure that they're fairly distributed and so on and so forth. And there, there was a, a plan put in place to increase the minimum uh, level of uh, corporate taxation to 15%. Ireland signed up to that plan, but it still hasn't been fully implemented. It hasn't come into play. Do we know where, where that process is at? Because the government has signaled that some of our tax tax revenues will actually be in danger uh, as a result of that, you know, potentially two, three, four billion euro could disappear as a result of that process. Um, it, it's still marred in politics, uh, to be honest. I mean, the, the 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 big decision has been taken by the government, the concession. Uh, Ireland capitulated on the 12.5% uh, rate of uh, corporation tax that has proved so contentious over many years. The capitulation has happened. The uh, giving effect to the change has yet to happen, but I suppose it all underlines the fact that even while these revenues have been growing very, very substantially and at a, at a, at a very fast rate, it takes place against the backdrop of this very long, winding and complicated OECD process, which is essentially designed to ensure that companies, the largest companies in the world, pay more tax around the world, not just in jurisdictions such as Ireland, where they pay very, very large amounts of corporate tax. So it is a threat, and that threat has been there since the start of the OECD process, which was which which goes back many, many years now at this point. Um, some interesting comments from Michael O'Leary in the past few days, Arthur, to The Telegraph in London, um, where he has said, if Sinn Féin comes to power and it starts to uh, tinker with our corporation tax rates, um, that Ryanair uh, could well uh, simply move its head office from Ireland. It could, it could quit Ireland and move uh, somewhere else, that he wouldn't be for hanging around. And he doesn't seem to be a fan of uh, Sinn Féin. Now, no suggestion to date that Sinn Féin uh, is going to tinker with the corporate, corporation tax uh, levels here. In fact, they seem to be signed up to this uh, 15% OECD uh, plan as much as the government. But it is an interesting signal, isn't it, from uh, big business in Ireland um, that with Sinn Féin riding high in the polls, they have some concerns. Um, I think there's no doubt that I mean, business is always going to look at what's going on in politics. That is inevitable. Um, I mean, and I think there's there's no doubt that uh, Sinn Féin has been reaching out, if you like, to the business community. That's a, that's a process that's going on uh, for a considerable period. People in business would say, people who look at these type of things, type of things uh, quite closely, they would say, look at the evidence is that uh, Sinn Féin in government in the north um, hasn't uh, torn up economic policy. Now, the the the, the freedom of manoeuvre that the executive has had in the north when it has been up and running uh, is less than than it would have here. But if the the Sinn Féin policy essentially is predicated on a large volumes of government spending, well, then uh, there has to be some kind of certainty as to the amount of revenues that are going to come in to fund such spending. So uh, that is uh, a, an area that is uh, that is no doubt under close scrutiny, but it would be with the, under close, close, close scrutiny within Sinn Féin as well as it plans what it would do were it to find itself in government. Yeah, so lots of threats to our corporation tax base is an important uh, source of funding now for the Exchequer. What can the government do about it or what should the government do about it, Arthur? Well, I mean, I I, I, I think given the 
amount of money that has come in, given the danger of becoming addicted to it, as, I, as I've stated, um, the first thing is to uh, keep an eye on it and try and ensure to the greatest extent possible that there is no uh, diminution in the amount of money coming through. But that's very hard to guard against because these corporation tax revenues uh, are predicated on the profitability of large corporations who are in turn exposed to the headwinds of the economy and the head- headwinds of the markets in which they operate. The, uh, the other people would say, look, you know, the, the you know wh- wh- what we should do is build up the domestic economy to ensure we are less reliant on these kind of global profits. Again, very, very hard to do. Uh, mobile international capital is central to our economic model has been central to the growth scene in the economy over many, many years. And uh, the the idea that we're going to kind of reverse out of that and come up with something else new entirely is um, uh, doesn't really stack up. And yet, when we have uh, a report, if you like, from the Commission of Taxation, which was set up a couple of years ago, met uh, over many, many months, produced a very, very large report, many, many ideas for expanding the tax base, one of the first reactions uh, from the government was from the Tánis Dalí of Varekar, who essentially um, essentially rubbished some of the report. Um, so, I mean, the, these issues are live, the issues are real, the debate is real, uh, but as to whether there's going to be any change, who knows. Arthur Beasley, thank you for joining us. OK, we're going to take a short break now. When I return, I'll be talking to Mark Paul of the Irish Times about government plans to liberalise our licensing laws. Back in a few moments. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Last week, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, unveiled proposals that would liberalise our licensing laws, some of which date back 200 years. In essence, this will allow pubs and nightclubs to stay open for longer. In his Irish Times column last week, Mark Paul welcomed these moves, and you'll hear him explain why in a few moments. But I began by asking him to outline the main changes being proposed by the government. It's a kind of a joint plan between Helen McAtee, the Minister for Justice, and also Catherine Martin, the Minister for Tourism and Culture. And, and what, what happened last week was that um, the sponsoring minister, Helen McAtee, brought a cabinet the sale of alcohol bill, which is basically the biggest overhaul of Ireland's pub and licensing laws in a generation, in, in more than a generation. As you said, it would codify laws going back to the early 1800s, um, right through independence um, and, and, and right through up until other attempts to codify the laws um, as recently as 10 or 15 years ago. But this is the most far-reaching. And the main changes... Um, they can be broken down into different categories. The most eye-catching of the proposals and the one that sort of attracted a lot of the media attention was the fact that um, nightclubs now will be able to open until 6am under these proposals. Um, they'll be able to serve alcohol until 5am um, and then there'll be another hour of dancing, um, bad dancing, I'm sure, at that hour of the morning um, and, and they can close at 6am. And this would bring, um, this, this is aimed really at major urban centres like Dublin and it would sort of bring Dublin into line, I guess, with um, continental cities. Anyone who's ever been, for example, on a weekend to Berlin knows how nightclub and cultures would be part of it. Now, there are stipulations around how you get that kind of a license. 20%, one-fifth of your indoor 
um, um, floor space has to be a dance floor. So your, your average common or garden pub couldn't get a license like that. Now, another big change in the sale of alcohol bill that's been proposed by Helen McEntee um, is that all pubs um, will be allowed to open until 12.37 nights a week. Now, that's currently only the case on Thursdays and Fridays. Um, and they they had to close earlier on other nights, 11 and 11.30 during the week. Um, so it, it will be 12.37 nights a week. Another major change is that there's going to simplify the system for late bars, which are distinct from nightclubs. Um, late bars are pubs that get special special exemptions to open until 2.30 a.m. I suppose in kind of 1990s sort of um, salmon shirt wearing dad culture, we would call these disco bars. Um, um, but now uh, they're bars that open until 2.30, serve alcohol until 2.30. And up until now, what they've had to do is um, regularly apply for special exemption orders, um, um, which require the approval of the guards and, and, and ultimately of a court. Um, but they'll be able to get a sort of a, a catch-all license. They won't have to keep going back for these special exemption orders and it'll be easier for them to get. Um, another major reform, and, and, and this is something that's been coming for a while, is um, up until now there has been in existence what's called the one-for-one one rule. And that means if you want to open a new pub or licensed premises, you've got to kill off another pub or licensed premises, um, and its license. Um, so you've got to extinguish an old license. Um, and, and it used to be a two-for-one until sometime within the last 15 years or so. Um, now it's one-for-one. One. That, that, that has its roots in an old British colonial law that thought that there's just too many pubs and places to drink in Ireland. So if you want to open a new one, you've got to kill off uh, other licenses um, um, to try and bring down the number. And what Helen McEntee has said is that, look, um, 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 we'll, we'll just give out new licenses of people. You don't have to kill them off. Um, now, licenses at the moment go on the market for between 40 and 45 grand. And um, you often see down the country, for example, uh, uh, you know, old hardware shops and stuff that might have in the family an old public license and maybe they'll serve a couple of people at a counter, you know, three lads uh, having a bottle of Guinness at a counter a couple of times a year in order to retain their license. Those kind of licenses sometimes are bought by uh, new ventures, new pubs, um, um, extinguished and then they get a new one. So that one-for-one one rule is being killed off. Another um, change is that it's going to be easier for wine bars to get um, to get to get uh, these 2.30 a.m. late bar licenses. Um, and so, so these are very, very far-reaching reforms um, for a sector that has been really put upon in the last couple of years. Um, and, you know, it's been subject to, obviously, the pandemic, like all of us, um, economic changes, but also social changes. We all drink differently now, and, and, and society drinks, um, you know, there's been structural change in how consumers behave. And the sector has really been buffeted. Um, and this is another major, major, major change to the sector that it's going to have to negotiate. There are a couple of things that strike me about this, uh, Mark. One is that this kind of reverses the direction of travel, if you like, around uh, the sale of alcohol in this country. We've seen a tightening of uh, rules and laws rather than uh, a loosening, which has been proposed here. And we have, you know, the alcohol minimum unit pricing uh, and so on. And obviously there's a, a very strong anti-alcohol uh, lobby uh, in the country. But the other thing is, um, of all of the challenges facing the government at the moment, when you take a cost of living inflation, the energy crisis, when you think of housing and all the, the issues uh, around that, uh, you know, allowing pubs to open until half 12 on a Monday night or nightclubs to stay open until 6 a.m., for example, you would have thought that would be very low down the list of priorities for the government. 
Well, look, I mean, I mean, just because there's a housing crisis and, and, and because we have a cost of living crisis, that doesn't mean that every other issue in the country, I suppose, gets parked until those two issues are finished. I take the point that you're making. I mean, look, this isn't the highest up the list of priorities, but the codification and the overhaul of the, of the country's licensing regime and its regime for pubs, I mean, it kind of has been a priority for many, many years within that sector. I mean, as you said, these laws go back, some of them, to, to the early 1800s. I mean, they have no place in a modern economy. Um, and, and, you know, stuff like the one-for-one one rule, it just doesn't really make sense now. So, look, I, I, I take your point. It's not, um, um, you know, this isn't life or death for society generally, um, but it's for this industry, the, the, the overhaul and the upkeep and, and, and the sort of the, the revamp of the entire licensing regime, it has been on the cards for a long, long time. It's been called for for a long, long time. And particularly when you have a sector that's just... I, I suppose the government has held it by the hand and taken it through the pandemic and pumped loads of taxpayers' cash into it. The government now also has a vested interest in making sure the sector can stand on its own two feet. And to do that, it needs the solid foundation of a proper regulatory regime, which it doesn't have at the moment. Um, and there's no reason in the world why, you know, I can jump on a Ryanair flight and go to um, Berlin and, uh, and and go to a nightclub until six o'clock in the morning. I can do that in Madrid. I can do that in a lot of other European cities. There's no real reason why people shouldn't be able to do that in Dublin and why tourists who come here shouldn't be able to do that. And, you know, I don't think that pubs opening until 12.30 on a Monday night as opposed to 11.30, I don't think anything like that is going to be such a major social change that... Um, 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 you know, it's something that 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 that, that the government should consider not doing. It, it, it might very well help a lot of suburban or city pubs stay in business. Um, so, I, you know, I'm I'm in favour of of a liberalisation of these rules. Um, um, you mentioned the health argument, and look, you know, there, there's a point there, but we have to we have to distinguish here between the retail sale of alcohol for consumption off of premises and and these rule changes, which are about the on trade, the pub trade, and um, which has been in decline for a long, long time. Um, um, regardless of the pandemic, regardless of anything else, um, you know, pubs have been have been closing to be banned for um, for years. I mean, and we've lost about the country has lost about twenty percent of its pubs, or more than that, in the last fifteen years. And the reason for that is because Ireland is overpubbed. We have had too many of them, and for such a long period of time, there's been such a structural change in people's behaviour. So we need to right size. Um, the regulations around this sector and and, and the liberalisation now, um, um, you know, I don't really, I see the arguments against it, but I think the arguments in favour of it are better arguments. Mark, if we go back to 2005, Michael McDowell, who was the Justice Minister at the time, he's now uh, he's now a senator and he's also a columnist with the Irish Times, but he he had plans to deregulate the market here and to try and introduce a cafe bar culture, which seemed to me at the time to be a pretty good idea. But it didn't actually get off the ground because there was a, a significant uh, lobby uh, against it. I'm just wondering if Helen McEntee's uh, plan might meet with sim- uh, similar opposition and actually that some of the, you know, some of the proposals that she's made in this bill might not see the light of day. Yeah, look, you make a fair point there about Michael McDowell. In, in 2005, with his cafe bar culture, I think what he really wanted to do was to reduce the stranglehold of licensed pubs on selling drink for consumption off the premises. Um, and he effectively wanted to completely deregulate the sector, and he thought that, you know, we'd all be sitting out on, on, on balmy terraces drinking Sauvignon Blanc until uh, the evening hours, you know, instead of, you know, piled three deep at a bar, swilling pints before closing time. Um, it, you're, you're right, it didn't get off the ground because of the lobbying of pubs. A very, very powerful lobby at the time. Fianna Fáil were in that government with Michael McDowell when he was Minister for Justice, and they were lobbied very, very heavily. And those plans were effectively stillborn. Um, the sale of alcohol bill proposed by Helen McEntee 
Um, it hasn't been lobbied hard for us. The, the, the two main publican groups, you have the LVA, Licensed Vintners Association, which do city Dublin pubs, um, and you have and then the Vintners Federation of Ireland, which do all the pubs outside of Dublin. Um, they've both sort of held their council, more or less, so to speak. Um, but I do think some opposition is, is, is going to come a little bit later. Um, I wouldn't like to create the impression that, that this thing is going to sail through completely unscathed. But like to take, for example, with the city pubs, with the LVA, um, like they got most of what they asked for. There was a big, long consultation process ahead of the, the sale of alcohol bill. They asked for the nightclubs to 6am, they got it. They asked for 12, 37 nights per week, they got it. They asked for a liberalisation of late bars. Um, the, the one for one rule, that's going to affect city pubs because um, um, Helen McEntee's justification for ending their own one for one rule is that it will make it easier to open rural pubs to sort of reinvigorate towns and villages around the country. What's actually going to happen is that um, um, publicans, if it's easier to get a pub license, you'll find those pubs will open where the business is, which is in cities and, 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 and Dublin City. So more pubs are probably going to open in Dublin as a result of it. Another thing that may meet some opposition from the sector, particularly in Dublin, I think, is that under Helen McAtee's proposals, she is going to make it easier for wine, for premises that have a wine, a license to serve wine only, um, to eventually become late bars. Um, up until now, it's been quite easy not easy, but it's been quite uh, um, 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 doable for a pub or a hotel to get a 2.30 a.m. special exemption order. But now a wine bar will be able to get it as well, or a, a wine premises. So you run the, I suppose, you know, if you had a restaurant certificate as well, I suppose it opens the possibility that you might have city centre restaurants in Dublin that operate as a restaurant until restaurant closing time, kick back the chairs, create a dance floor, um, uh, and, uh, and and then operate as a late bar until 2.30am. And I think city publicans will have something to say about that. You'll also have rural publicans might have something to say about the end of the one-for-one one rule because they're sitting on a on an asset of 40 to 45 grand, which is the cost of their licence. Um, now, there has been... I, I think Helen McAtee has tried to see that off in the past because most of the, 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 the market for rural pub licences is actually um, with the likes of Aldi and Lidl. Now, they don't run pubs, obviously, but they have to obtain an on-premises license in order to operate as an off-license. So every time Aldi or Lidl or, or any supermarket chain, Super Value, opens a new you know, uh, supermarket down in Ballydehob or Ballahadreen or wherever, they need to get an alcohol license. And what they've been doing until now is buying old pub licenses for 40, 45 grand, extinguishing those and then getting a, a license for the premises. And Helen McAtee has, has, has said the one-for-one one rule will remain in existence for um, retailers for off sales, so 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 supermarkets sh should still have to do that. So that might keep the value of it up, but rural publicans will certainly be worried. I think about it's a little bit like the, the deregulation of taxis, if you remember back in you know twenty years ago or a little over twenty years ago when the PDs did it, um, and taxi drivers were sitting on these licenses worth about eighty grand at the time, and they deregulated the sector, and overnight those licenses were worthless. It's a kind of a mini version of that with rural publicans. There will be worry over that. I think there will be some opposition to some of the proposals, and um, but it won't be as hot and as heavy as the opposition that Michael McDowell faced and uh, and it's it, it's going to come a little bit later and, and, and maybe, um, yeah, just, just not quite as very... And Mark, how are the pub and nightclub sectors doing at the moment? You've covered hospitality a lot over the last uh, couple of years. They had a rough period and the pubs in, in particular were closed for so long, probably uh, as long as uh, any other sector. So how have they rebounded? Have we seen a lot of closures? Have we seen a lot of business failures? 
Um, we haven't seen huge amount of business failures in any uh, sector of the economy uh, uh, because I suppose the effect of the government's subsidies across the economy, the wage subsidies, the reopening grants, um, 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 all of those pandemic era payments um, has sort of kept a lot of insolvency at bay. And insolvencies right throughout the pandemic in all sectors were below the norm. But where there has been insolvencies as those um, uh, supports were taken away. The hospitality sector has been up there, the construction sector as well and, and other sectors, but the hospitality sector has been right up there. So there has been some closures. The market is effectively split in three, right? You've got rural pubs, city pubs and suburban pubs. Um, um, city pubs, uh, uh, depending on where they are in the city, have actually been doing okay. Um, um, suburban pubs have done well um, since the market has reopened because you know, a lot of people are working from home. They don't go into the city centre, into the office now. Maybe when they knock off on a Friday, they head to the pub around the corner. Rural pubs um, have been doing badly for many, many years. Um, and that's a very broad statement. Some, I'm sure, have been doing well. But as a, as a sector, rural pubs have been doing bad for many years. And that isn't due to any, you know, single pandemic decision or any um, 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 small wrinkle of the economy. That is just a structural change in how people behave. And um, they don't drink and drive anymore. Um, so these pubs are harder to get to. They're harder to go home from when you've got a few beers in you. Um, and 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 people tend to drink more at home because there's more Aldi's and Lidl's and Super Values and Tesco's, a better place selling nice wine and, and, and sure, look, want to have your friends over for a glass of, uh, of Beaujolais instead of going down to the pub. So the, the, the sector has done well when it has been allowed to open. Um, um, pubs have bounced back well and they've actually bounced back quicker than, than what was feared at the height of the pandemic. Um, but long term, I don't think much has changed for the sector um, 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 uh, because of the structural changes in the way people drink. The sector has much a much bigger focus on food. Um, it's reliant on tourism. We don't know how tourism is going to go over the next few years. Um, so there are a lot of challenges ahead for a sector that has a, had an awful lot of state intervention um, over the years. And state intervention always has unforeseen consequences. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next uh, over the next few years. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Art Beasley and Mark Pohl. The show was produced by Declan Conlon with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.